Imagine a four-year-old being alone for several weeks, just having to see how to survive. So that was the, the case for me. Sometimes she would come back, she, sometimes she wouldn't, and I had to just make it through. All of a sudden it became the norm. It became the norm that I had to grow up very quickly and, and, and survive. The true story I'm gonna share with you today, I'm not sure even Walt Disney would do justice to in his prime. It's about triumph, it's about becoming world renowned. But what makes this rags to riches story so compelling? One of such magnitude, one of such heart, is that it begins in the slums of Costa Rica. A young boy, often abandoned by his drug addicted mom, who describes himself as an animal and does whatever he can to survive and when his mother's around, keep her alive. But then this horrific story becomes a fairy tale. The pauper becomes the prince. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented through the generosity of RBC. Each week, I get to share stories of ordinary people who do extraordinary things despite circumstance. And in doing so, we uncover their life lessons, lessons that inspire us to do more and be more, to help us get to where we need, want, and deserve to go. And today, this story is gonna make you cry first for situation, and then cry with joy for celebration. And between those two points, you're gonna smile, and I bet even pump your fist. My guest today is a world-renowned architect. He's a Renaissance man who fuses together the creativity of a painter with the pragmatism and pace of an engineer. He's in a constant conversation with nature. Benjamin Sachs, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm so glad to be able to share my story with you today. Benjamin, we're going to get to your career later. How you studied in Costa Rica, the highly respected Rhode Island School of Design. When you went to England, you won one of the top awards in the world for architecture, were offered a partner, returned to Costa Rica. I want you to first share your early days on this planet, when your only thought was about safety and survival, not following a path to purpose and pursuit. Well, I think that um, we are shaped by key moments in our lives. And for me, um, the first years of my life were pivotal to what I, uh, what I am now. Of course, we are all shaped by those first years. In my case, um, they were tough. They were tough because, because my mother was a single mother and um, she was going through a very rough patch. And that rough patch made her go into drugs, alcohol, and live a very, very difficult life with no means to be able to take care of a baby or a child. So I was born into that circumstance, into that world. And um, I, had to, I had to survive. I had to make it through. There were moments where I believed that... Um, we're not going to make it in terms of food, in terms of literally just making it through the day. And in time, I had to become the adult, the grown up. I had to mature very quickly to be able to make sure that we were going to eat, that make sure that we were going to move forward. So uh, this all happened in what would what we was uh, sort of slum in the city of San Jose. 
most of my friends um, didn't have even shoes. Um, I might, I was the only one with shoes. I remember at some point, um, I had nothing to eat. So a lot of, uh, of their of people would just give me food as well. And we would play on the streets and a little bit wild. And uh, sometimes I didn't even know that I was uh, wild or that I had nothing. I just was. And, um, it was only at some point when I had nothing to eat that I realized my situation was not, uh, appropriate. Thinking back, playing in a street as a kid, then you have to come home. And when you do, you'll often find your mom in this drug addicted state. What was that like? Yes, I, I guess um, because, because she was in that um, crazy world of, of, of rock and roll and, and, uh, and drugs and all that, um, we were living in a very precarious situation and m everybody around as well. So living in that situation um, forced me to be outside all day long. I didn't want to be in inside of a, I don't know hot <laughs> of a hot house, and um, so I was out. I was on the streets all day long, just uh, playing, playing what I thought was playing, and also making it through. Um, she would come home after two weeks being away. Imagine a, imagine a I don't know a four year old being alone for four for several weeks just having to see you know how to how to survive so that was the the case for me sometimes she would come back she sometimes she wouldn't and I had to just make it through and all of a sudden it became the norm it became the norm that I had to grow up very quickly and may and and survive um is the the good thing is that Costa Rica and, and is a place where where there's a lot of people that are benevolent as well. There's a lot of beauty and a lot of um, love as well in people here. So even though I was in, in a dire situation, there's always key moments, key people, um, beautiful people that would um, take care of me and that will push me through. And all of them uh, were part of this journey. Did you ever get a good night's sleep? For me, the realization of my situation was not necessarily apparent. So... I would say I would be, was, my worry was more for my mother, not necessarily for the physical circumstances I was in. Like it was more a psychological thing, more about sensibility, not necessarily about comfort. So comfort was okay because I'm, I was used to it. It's not a problem at all. It was more about uh, caring and thinking of this other human being, loving that other human being instinctively. Uh, that was what kept me awake, what, what worried me. Could you imagine, um, you know, uh, a kid? I know uh, probably people hearing this, some of you have gone through similar things at different points of your life. It's interesting to go through that at a, such an early age. It forces one to think about life um, in, in a different way at a very young age. Benjamin, you're a young kid and, you're, and your mom disappears sometimes for a week or two. Do you ever wonder, is she, she going to return? Is she going to come back to you? And when she does return, does she bring back strangers? My, bro my mother certainly would bring men into her house, uh, men that I didn't know, and would stay for some days, et cetera. And they were, and they were different and many, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I was not judgmental. I, I thought that if that gave her um, peace or that would give her uh, happiness, that was fine. So... Um, It was not a big issue to, for me. It was more that um, she was all over the place and that she couldn't find herself. And again, 
these are all issues that one can see in somebody else that you that you really love and you start taking those lessons to yourself i was already very little and i was thinking you know what i want to want to i don't want to be with a thousand partners i don't want to be testing a million partners when i grow up i want to be with one person i want to be with one person for the long run i don't want to be uh, changing so that all shaped me my the view, my view of life how what I wanted, like I wanted security, I wanted longevity, I wanted relationship, uh, I wanted uh, uh, stability. All these things that I didn't have, I started yearning for at a very young age. And I was, and I would say to myself, this is what I'm going to have in the future. And hopefully when I have it, I can give it back to her. And um, so already thinking that I was going to take care of her at a very young age. But you're six years old when you're thinking this. Yes, that's, that's why... Um, when we look, when I look at a child, uh, you know, I don't know, a four, a six, a five-year-old, I can see that they have such capability for maturity and for understanding as well. Like we don't, we, and, and this is something that even, that I, I've been thinking a lot about, that children um, um, are much more than we think. Uh, they can understand and perceive and they can, they can, they can see the world in a, in a, in a way that it will surprise all of us. And I think it's the, that awareness of children, of adults about the, per, about the perception of children or the capability of children, um, should start to change because actually, um, is the children have and understand a lot more than we think, than we think. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Text me at any time at 71010. To have a copy of the show, download Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcasts or visit me at chatterthatmatters.ca. When we come back, Benjamin, the slum urchin, gets pulled out of the slums into the lap of luxury. Well, uh, they wanted to take photographs of you sharing your home, sir, with an orphan. Don't you remember, sir? It's only for a week. Together at last. Together forever. We're tying a knot. In time, I had to become the adult, the grown-up. I had to mature very quickly to be able to make sure that we were going to eat, that make sure that we were going to move forward. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. If you're just joining me, I'm chatting with Benjamin Sachs. He's a world-renowned architect. But up until age of seven, he was barely surviving each day, living in a slum. And he was never a child. He was the parent to his drug-addicted mother. And then something happens that truly defines life-changing. Benjamin, what happened one day to you? Well, I was um, taken out of this world by uh, an architect and um, his wife. They looked at my situation and they realized how I was living. And all of a sudden, from one day to the next, I was thrown into a life of comfort. And this didn't happen just because because of it. It happened because my father did have a relationship with my biological mother many years before that, when everything was okay. <laughs> and uh, and they and he always felt a love for her. Uh, I would say my adopted father, father always felt a love for her. And then uh, he wanted to help her out when she was in, pr- in trouble. And he, he came over and brought food or, or milk or whatever. And one of those days that he came over, he I was there and he realized I was in that situation. 
And um, I, he told me that once he came over, he I, I ran to him and said, daddy, or something like that. And that he, he I really touched him. So it was really this desire of this kid of having a father. And then one day uh, he came back and he saw that the situation was getting worse and it was just really, really bad. And uh, I was being left for so many weeks on end. And they said, we need to do something. He felt something. He felt this yearn, this, yearn, this, this push to be able to take care of me and to help my mother in that way. And uh, he did. He took me in. And uh, I also had a stepmom. He was married and had a, and then later on had a couple of, uh, more brothers actually so I have an older brother and two younger brothers and we became a family of um, an awkward family an interesting family of where I was I would say a sort of misfit but at the same time loved as much as somebody can love a wild child <laughs> so did your did your stepmother ever resent the fact that your stepfather had a relationship with your biological mother and you were the bridge between the two. Did, you, did that, did that ever come in your way? No, no. She was, my stepmother was one of the proponents of me going, going to her. And uh, she's always been um, helping foster kids and, uh, and places and uh, local organizations that deal with foster children. She's always been in love with, uh, with, with children. So she was one of the proponents that I was, that I would come to their home and um, and be taken care of. So actually, I'm very grateful to her. So she had to take care of me at a moment where I was just really, really naughty and really, really difficult and and full of, you know, probably hate and, and all these things. Well, Benjamin, for good reason, though. I mean, you're not, it's not like you're uh, rescued into a refugee camp or a church group. I mean, you go from the slums to a very wealthy family. Do you remember that first day where they, you came home in the car, what the car was like? Do you remember any of those at that time? I would say that it, it was more of a progressive. I would say that I, I would go to their home every now and then, and then slowly that became more of a constant to the point that I just uh, stayed. So it was, uh, I would say, a, a testing period for both for both my mother, because she obviously didn't want to let me go, and for them to see if they could have me. Um, and, and for her, for my stepmother, I, I, because she was the one that had to be with me almost all day long. So it was a testing period, and uh, I don't remember the exact date, but I do remember a moment of like having my own bedroom, uh, you know, oh my God, I have my own bedroom. Um, I have my own stuff, um, comfortable stuff. You must have had your first drawer that you could open up and say, I have shirts in there. I have underwear. I have, I have, I have stuff. Yes. I think that, um, that, uh, I was very appreciative of all the, of all the things that I now be able, I have like brand new tennis shoes. And what well, was it like though, leaving, coming there for a day and then having to go back? I mean, what, what did your, your your biological mom must have known she couldn't give you this stuff, but you're coming back and you must be so excited to talk about having your own bed or having food. I mean, what what what's the dynamics going on between the prince and the pauper? I think it's uh, there. There certainly was a level of jealousy from my mother, and of, and and she wasn't a hundred percent happy about um, all the great things, I, great stories I would have. She wished she could give me all that, of course. And so she wasn't that content because of it. And it was, it was an easy decision for her in the end to let me go. But she knew it was the right thing for me and that I was going to be given all the opportunities. But at the same time, um, she wished she could give me that. So I, I felt even then that I couldn't tell her too much. I had to be very smart about what I could, I would tell her. I would just, so I couldn't be 
a child. I couldn't be a child just like rambling and saying all these great things that I did that day. I was very aware that I couldn't say any of that because I would hurt, hurt her. And I've been very careful with words ever since. What do I say? What can I say? And what the impact that our words have on others. Did you ever feel that you could plant roots in this or that one day this would all be taken away from you? Because that's such a massive change. You're an extraordinarily old soul and a young boy, but how did you ever wake up one day and say, this is my life going forward? I think one key factor here is that I truly believed this guy who adopted me was my father. I believe that. And they never, they, uh, they never told me until I was later on that he was not my father. I, I actually thought I was going back to my father. So they were clever in, in, um, putting this idea there that this was meant to be and this was, uh, this was a logical move. They were also realizing that I was very smart uh, in terms of understanding uh, psycholo psychological um, nuances and that if they would tell me that he was not the father, etc., I might actually go in the wrong direction. So they told me, uh, you know, that I had another dad like when I was 13 years old And that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I realized I was a full foster kid. I was not like a half foster kid. I was a, I was a full foster kid. And actually I was, because I was the right mindset. So it was a, it's always been a progressive thing. You know, it wasn't like one day I woke up and I realized something. It was like slowly, they were very, very, very smart about it. They were slowly telling me things as we move along. And then I was reacting to these things always in a way that I, of gratitude. I was always a, looking at all this as, as every single opportunity, every single gift, everything was uh, something that I really cherished. But now today, even today, some of the scars that I have, for example, is I, I don't like being given gifts. I, I don't, I hate people giving me things. I, and even when I was a kid, I was like, I didn't, I don't deserve these things. I don't deserve this, these gifts or these opportunities, things like that. So I felt like that. So, wow, why do I have all this? So it's still something that I struggle with. Like, you know, do I, do I deserve these things? Do I buy myself a car? Whatever, all these things, it, it's ridiculous, but actually it is, it is, is it a bit, a little of the scars that I'm still dealing with today. So the people that rescued you, your stepfather and stepmother start having their own children. How did you feel? Did you ever feel you fit into that family or were you always the square peg and the round hole, especially as you get into your teen years and you find out, as you say, you're a full-fledged foster kid. Did that impact you? Uh, yes, certainly. I, I can give you, give you, for example, a small anecdote. Um, when we were all watching TV, let's say on the bed, I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, being on the bed uh, with my foster parents and my brother, my, my brothers. I, I would be on the floor. And I would never be comfortable doing that. So never felt 100% treated the same. And I think if we are honest about it, like really honest about it, it is not the same. It is not the same because there is a, a different connection between a child that was born from, from your womb and a child that you have adopted. And actually, sometimes I feel that I was given even more attention. Like they, because they was foster, actually, they, they gave me a lot of attention and maybe trying to make me feel good, but it's just something instinctive in that it's not the same. And maybe because I was older as well, because if you're, you know, if you're taking in at, at a you know, one year old or six months old, so I never felt truly uh, a, a family, that I had a family. I felt that I was there and given an opportunity and grateful and all that, but not necessarily as part of the nucleus of the family. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Download Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcast. Text me at 71010. 
we come back, Benjamin reconnects with his mom and in a manner that garners him international recognition and attention. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to the RBC Climate Blueprint. It's a coordinated strategy designed to accelerate clean economic growth. And it includes providing $500 billion in sustainable financing by 2025. Net zero matters to RBC. taken out of this world by uh, an architect and um, his wife. We became a family, of um, an awkward family, an interesting family. I would say a sort of misfit, but at the same time loved as much as somebody can love a wild child. <laughs> Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with Benjamin Sachs, a world-renowned architect, someone who's in a constant conversation with nature and believes less is more. His first seven years wasn't about structure or dreams, it was about survival and trying to keep his drug-addicted mother alive. He gets adopted by one of the wealthiest families in Costa Rica because his dad knew his mom when she was a young girl and not consumed by her demons. Benjamin goes from pauper to prince and along the way finds that his mind effortlessly moves from creativity, painting and performance arts to math. He chooses to follow his stepfather and becomes an architect. Benjamin studied in the United States at the Rhode Island School of Design, one of the most prestigious schools, and you end up going to England. Why England to work? Well, I think that um, my life changed dramatically when I was 17. I, I met this girl and, um, and we started dating. And then uh, we married when I was 23 and, um, and we were left to the States to study in, at Rhode Island School of Design. And when I finished my master's degree when I was 27, three years later, uh, she got a placement to dance. She was a dancer to dance in London. So <clears throat> it was my time to follow her. It's my time to go with her, to follow her dream and, um, and look for work in London. So um, I think that at, that at that moment, I realized that it was a team she and I are a team. We have to help ourselves fulfill our dreams. And uh, we had to also work together to become a family, to become a nucleus, that very tight uh, uh, team. And together we help each other to achieve those dreams we are going to go and get. And actually moving to London was a was a, probably one of the best moves I've ever made because I managed to work for a world-renowned architect called Richard Rogers. He designed the Pompidou in Paris and many interesting buildings around the world. And I managed to, to, to learn a lot. Did you ever share with Erica, your wife, uh, the six-year-old Benjamin that said, I only want one partner in my life. I'm not going to ever live this nomadic, uh, promiscuous world my, my mom did? I can tell you some anecdotes about Erica uh, and my mother. Because when I was 17 and Erica was 16, we would go and visit my mother, my mother was living at the beach. She was living on a tent or in a hammock 
and uh, and we would sleep on a tent right next to her or with her. And I would be bringing this girl from a very posh uh, background uh, to this tent on the beach with my mother, who is literally cooking the fish she got from the ocean or whatever. And um, so she realized where I came from and who my mother was and uh, and how uncomfortable this could be. And Erica, I would say, is a four by four type of woman. She understood all this and she understood that that made me very strong and that I still had a love for my mom. And she respected that and she met my mom and she loved some of the um, ideals of, of living free and uh, living of nothing and, and all of these things that in our family have had situations. We had nothing. We had to, you know, we were, we were at school, but we had no money and it doesn't matter. Like we were always okay with that. We knew that we were going to be okay. So this idea that we, that we are together and we're going to support each other and it doesn't matter what happens, uh, comes a lot from, from understanding that there's, there's ways of living that could be more simple like my mother. So that there's a, there's some lessons there, some positive lessons of, of, of being a free spirit and that I still cherish in my everyday life. It's Tony Chapman. We're chatting with Benjamin Sachs, a world renowned architect. And I, I encourage you to get a box of Kleenex because it certainly brought tears to my eye. So Benjamin and his wife, Erica, they're in England. He's working for one of the most prestigious uh, architect firms in the world. That hippie mom of yours that lives in a tent and lives in a hammock, you did something very special for her. Tell us what you did. When I was at RISD in the school, um, my degree project, I decided to design a house for my mother. Hey, I had probably other friends that wanted to do, I don't know, um, a shopping mall or whatever. But I wanted to design a house for my mother and I wanted to build it someday. So I started thinking about, you know, what could I give her? How can I give this person a house, a typical house, if such an un unconventional person that lives practically outdoors? Um, she built herself a house made of tin, tin, tin roof on the walls and like a little shack, I would call it, you know, she built herself something like that. And she told me that she put her bed on a corner of the house where she could look out and look at the moon. And then she remembered me. And then I was in London or wherever I was in the world, in the U.S. And um, the moon was, was her way of connecting with you. The moon was the way of her remi being reminded of me. And then she told me this, like, I, I, I do this every night and I remember and I think and we, that's how we connect. And I was like very taken aback by that moment. So when I was designing this house, I thought, how can I give her that moon? How can I um, make an architecture that grabs that moon for her and that tells her, look, this is me giving you that, giving you that moment. I'm, I'm here with you. So I designed a, a house with a cone shaped roof that has an opening at the top, really aligned with the moon. And that when she goes to sleep at night, she could look at the moon. So I made some drawings, some paintings about that. And it was all theoretical, right? It's all about how, you know, how to, how to achieve that moment. Then I went to London after my master's degree and I started saving money and to build this house. And we, we did manage to build a house. We actually created this beautiful cone shaped uh, roofs and, and, and all of these beautiful ideas came to life. And we saw the moon for the first time through the cone and we were like, oh my God, this is working. And then she started living there. And then she, you know, she started, um, uh, realizing in, in, uh, that that architecture is more than just the uh, walls and windows and stuff. It is a means to create deeper relationship between human beings. And it's also a reflection of love. 
It's a literal, physical reflection of uh, love between people, from one person to another, a child to a mother. Obviously, the satisfaction of being able to do that for her is immense. One of my one of the reasons, perhaps, why I became an architect in the first place, and to be able to know that it's much deeper than just four walls and a roof, but it's a connection between two human beings. That was really powerful, powerful for me, powerful for others. And in 2009, we were going through an economic recession, you know, around the world. And I entered the the World Architecture Festival, which is a huge awards ceremony for the best architecture in the world. And I entered with my mother's house. And, um, you know, believe it or not, I was I was chosen between the best 15 houses of the world. And there were Mac mansions with cliffs and stuff. And I was told to go to Barcelona and present to the judges last 15. And I went there and I presented this house uh, to them. And I just told them, this is this is what I did. I, what I just told you is nothing, nothing special, nothing spectacular. It was literally a simple house, very, very inexpensive. But in a, in a, in a moment where the world was going through a tough time, and I was just saying in architecture, the skill of architecture is to do a lot with very little. And what does a lot mean? It means using creativity to love other human beings in this way. What, what better way of doing it through architecture? And, uh, and yes, believe it or not, I won the award for the world's best private house, 2010. And what's the name of the house? The house is named A Forest for a Moon Dazzler. I wrote a little story about her routine, about how she w- loved being in the forest and about how she is dazzled by the moon. Literally, like, you know, going back to this instinctive, primitive thing that we are here in nature, surrounded by nature, and so sometimes we forget about it. And she, even though she had so much trouble in her life, ended up being uh, very connected to nature, actually completely engulfed by her surroundings and in love with the natural environment she was in. And um, that stuck with me very strong because I started seeing nature as this catalyst for change, as this opportunity to be able to change people's lives and to to have an awareness, awareness of oneself, awareness of the world that I believe was her medicine. It's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Text me at 71010, download Chatter That Matters, including the show, anywhere you get your podcasts. We come back, I chat with this extraordinary human being, Benjamin Sachs who's radiated soul since the age of six when he lived in slums to today where he is, his work is admired around the world. And I chat with him about his views on architecture. As he says, not about four walls, but the ability to unlock dreams while preserving the planet. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So then I got a call from him saying, we don't have to worry about money no more. And I said, that's good. One less thing. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. If you're just turning in, you're going to want to hear this entire story. It's about a pauper who spent his first six years trying to survive in a slum and keeping his drug-addicted mom alive to being pulled out and put in the lap of luxury and then pursuing life with passion and purpose. Benjamin Sachs at age 40 has already realized world recognition for his architecture and his compassionate heart radiates with gratefulness. 
Benjamin, you peers have gifted you with the highest honors. You teach all over the world. What you most deeply care about is Mother Nature and the nature of the humans who will live in your space. You were offered a partnership with one of the most prestigious architect firms in England, but you came back to Costa Rica because your dad was sick. We were talking last night and you talked about how different you two were in terms of your, your approach to architecture. Did that bring you together or did that pull you apart? The relationship with my father is 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 incredibly different than relationship with, with my mother. With my father, I, I saw authority. And in that authority, I saw order. I saw cleanliness. I saw other things. But I think architects sometimes um, are human beings that want to give order to the world, to the chaos of the world. Also, this idea that of humility, that architects are not here just to to engulf their ego, but actually we're here because we serve a purpose for other human beings. That all comes from him, and we are and we have always been very aligned in the in that. However, and how that materializes in the real world, how that is constructed through bricks and mortar, that's where we differ a lot. Why? Because the architecture that I started exploring is an architecture of extreme openness, of extreme connection to the outside. And for him, that was too much, going too further, because you need a level of comfort. You need to be inside. There's a storm or whatever. You can't be outdoors all the time. So we were always pushing in different directions. He's pushing more for in interiorness of architecture. And I was pushing more for the external connection of architecture. I think also because we're at different moments in our lives. You can imagine he's in his sixties and I'm in my twenties and thirties. And we're, we're looking at life at a completely different moment. Of our, he is more going in, like, you know, being more and more protected. And I am like, I want to get out there and I want to be, feel the sun in my face. And I want to feel the rain droplets and all that. Currently, where I am now, I'm starting to find a good, a good middle point, a good middle point of architecture where human beings can enjoy the natural world at the same time, have the comforts of the 21st century and have a balanced um, design strategy where we can achieve both. So if Mother Nature was had the ability to talk to, she does talk to humans, but if she had the ability to talk, what would she say about Benjamin Sachs in terms of the buildings you're creating within the beauty that Mother Nature provides? Uh, Mother Nature is us. We are part of it. We are an eco part of the ecosystem. We are not separate from it. I know that we are creating, uh, you know, spaces that are incredibly clinical and we are separating ourselves from the messiness and the and dirtiness of the, of the world. But actually, este, my intention is to to, uh, to create architecture that is maybe even a little bit dirty, maybe even a little bit rough, so that we are confronted with who we really are. Fantastic. So what's next? You're age 40. You're going to put a dent in the universe. You already are. What's the next 10 or 20 years? And, and are you still in step with Erica and you're still fulfilling each other's dreams? Yes, Erica and I came back to Costa Rica because we believe that Costa Rica is poised in the world to be able to be a testing ground for ideas that we the deal with the modern world collapsing with nature and the more primal aspect of human habitation. So this is a, the, the ideal testing ground. I actually believe that I'm a baby in terms of architecture, that I, there's so much more I need to learn about architecture. Every project that we take on is an opportunity to explore and to learn. And once you feel that you're learning every day, that you, that you are exploring things every day, that you're going somewhere, there's a level of purpose. There's a level of meaning. There's a level of knowing that what you're doing is what you should be doing. How can people find out more about who you are and the work you do? We have 
um, an Instagram at Studio Sax, which we are starting to work more and more, not as a, necessarily a marketing tool because we don't necessarily get clients through Instagram or anything like that, but we're using social media to try and spread the word. We're using also our website, studiosax.com. I think we're trying to take videos, we're trying to take imagery, we're trying to now write and also give lectures and all these means are, are helping us to communicate these ideas and hopefully others can get inspired and, um, and yes, and we can have a bigger impact. So my final question, if you had to pick one of these two choices, one, you get another international award or two, you see a client being able to look up at a cone and see a moon and smile. Which is more important to you? 100% human beings and their experience and their their quality of life is my main goal in life. That's what gives me satisfaction. And I would say for, to, for any architecture student hearing this right now, if that's the goal in life, I'm sure you're going to be happy. You're going to have a positive impact on other human beings. You're going to see them smile. You're going to see their lives change, their, uh, their businesses change. And the positive impact you can have on them is the best thing you can ever feel. And that's what's probably going to give success. If it doesn't success to others, if your peers give you a pat on the back or not, it doesn't really matter anymore. If you have that confidence and that knowledge that what you're doing is the best you can, that's all you really need. That confidence, that self-esteem. Building up the self-esteem, I think, is very important. I always end with three things I learned today. And the first thing that I admire most about you is when you were in that slum as a child, you already there started framing how you wanted to live your life. You weren't prepared to accept those circumstances. You wanted to find a partner for life. You wanted to do things. You wanted to make a difference. And then when you go from the being a pauper to the lap of luxury, the, the, the pauper and prince fairy tale, you started to apply yourself in creativity and performance arts and painting and architecture. And then today where you're, that knapsack has got such incredible yin and yang, zig and zag, highs and lows, and you fused it together. Even with talking about your dad, you always find this incredible middle where you draw upon the strengths of everything that's happened to you to be a better person to make a better planet. It's an honor to absolutely have you on Chat of the Matters. Thank you, Benjamin Sachs. Thank you for having me. And if I can say one last thing is that everything that happens, wrong or bad, happens for a reason. And we have to either take it take it in the right way or the wrong way. We can make that decision at every point. And I've had many other things happen to me. And I'm sure all of us hearing this, we have so much stuff that's happened to us. We all have our stories. But it's about how we take those in. How do we react in those moments? How do that shape our life? We can either continue living. And if we continue living, if we're going to make that decision, we're going to be here, then let's make the most out of it. Wonderful and wise words of advice. Encourage you to download this podcast and I certainly will listen to it over and over again. So thank you for uh, sharing all the gifts that you're uh, gifted with. Thank you. I just want to take a minute and give a shout out to RBC. You know, for three decades as an entrepreneur, I built two advertising agencies and a research firm. I got to work with clients large and small, local and global. And RBC is one of the most impressive, if not most impressive organizations I've ever worked with. And I'll tell you why. Because every time I've touched on a subject in this radio show or podcast, whether it's the future work, diversity inclusion, amateur athletics, aspiring artists, woman-led businesses, small businesses, they're there and they're investing their intellectual and financial capital to support and often drive these initiatives. And for sustainability, what I learned about was the RBC Climate Blueprint. 
It's a comprehensive and coordinated approach to accelerate clean economic growth. And RBC is providing more than intellectual capital. They're putting $500 billion in sustainable financing in place by 2025. Why? Net zero matters to RBC. It's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.